Jesus was never one to mince his words, was he? Uh, whether he was pronouncing forgiveness to people or speaking truth to power or like in this case where he's putting the cat amongst the everyday pigeons. What on earth was he getting at? Why would Jesus say such things? Fire on the earth. Divisions in families. It's pretty hard to understand. And I was talking with a group during the week and uh, the comment was made, this is one of those sayings that you kind of know doesn't quite fit with your understanding of the way things work, so you park it over there and leave it until it's such a time that you need to uh, come back to it because it doesn't really fit with the image we have of Jesus. But let's explore what he was actually saying. When Jesus announces he came to cast fire on the earth, this is an inescapably confronting image because here in Australia we know about fires, don't we? We know how destructive they can be. We know how fire consumes things. It does not exist except that it is consuming something, burning something up or burning something down. And this is the first sense that hits us when we think about fire. It's the destructive force, the consuming, destroying power of fire. But of course that's not the only thing that we think about with fire, is it? Fire comes and uh, we use it in very positive ways. Even the burning up thing can be a very positive thing. Fire destroys impurities. It uh, makes precious metals even more precious, as it were. Fire can remove that which gets in the way. I believe up in uh, far north Queensland, sugarcane farmers still burn their fields before they do their harvesting because there's so much water and rain up there that the cane develops quite a lot of foliage on the outside of it and it's just not viable to harvest the cane with all of that stuff on the cane still and so they light it up and put fire through it and it burns up all the unnecessary bits and just leaves the sugar producing part and it's then so much more economical to go through and harvest the cane. So fire can get rid of the not so useful bits, the bits that get in the way. So it's still destructive, but it's destructive in a positive kind of way. And again, in Australia, we know that fire also makes space available for new things to emerge. The Australian bushland regenerates itself through bushfires. There are seed pods that really only release their seeds in the intense heat of a bushfire and they release it knowing that the ground will be ready to receive it because it's been cleared of all the things that would get in the way of those seeds uh, making their way into a new whatever it is that it's going to be. So there's a burning away of that which gets in the way to make space for new things to emerge. So that kind of fire is a little bit more able to be tolerated, don't you think? I come to bring fire on the earth to purify and clear stuff out of the way and make space for something new to emerge. Is that a little bit easier to hear? It's still fire, still destructive in a way, but it's got a positive spin on it. What about this division stuff? Families are perhaps the most fundamental bond in society. How could Jesus possibly have 
anything to do with something so terrible as bringing division in families. The bond of family is so fundamental to human beings that without the nurture and care of family units, humanity would not be sustainable. It wouldn't be able to sustain itself. It's our primary place of belonging. Without family, uh, how would we care for infants that can't care for themselves? Even in institutions, we know, babies that aren't in a loving family just don't thrive in the same way that babies are, that are in loving families. We know that to be fully alive and fully human is to belong to a family. Why would Jesus say something about division in families? It's interesting to think about the bond that we have with our families. And as I look out upon you today, I know there'll be some people here who love their families and there'll be some people here who have some tensions in their families and there might even be some people here who are estranged from their families. And they'll be thinking about this division passage going, yeah, I know what that's about. It's interesting to consider how families function and what the bond is that holds us together and stops us from being fractured because sharing a family name holds you together no more than wearing the same uniform might. It's a very superficial kind of bond at one level even though you might spend key parts of your life together. Being held just by a family name doesn't really hold unity. See all around the world at the moment there are leaders attempting to create unity and belonging and they do it based on external conformities. Whether it's a conformity to an economic or political ideology, like global capitalism, or perhaps more Chinese-style controlled market capitalism in some places, or religious systems like Islam, or Catholicism, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or any other kind of ism, or indeed theological systems. Systems like evangelical Christianity that want you to believe all the same kinds of things. This kind of belonging ultimately relies on things that are external to who we are. What does real belonging look like when it's not based on satisfying someone else's criteria? What might it mean to belong because we choose to belong? We want to belong. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus is he drew people from all walks of life, all forms of levels of education, all places in the society, and they chose to walk with him because they wanted to, and that formed a very profound bond. It's a bit like the uh, wedding vows I've mentioned here quite often because when we say our wedding promises, we make a decision to be with somebody and it's not based on them. It's based on our decision to be committed to them. We only promise that which is in, within our power to promise and that's what we do. But this can be a little bit tricky because um, even... With Christianity, sometimes it's a little bit cart and horseish in funny kinds of ways. I remember when I first became involved with Christian things, the first way I became a Christian was that I bought into an ideology. That was that I accepted this thing and I got that thing. I accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour 
and as a result, I would get never-ending life in heaven. I accepted a dogma, and as a result, I became acceptable. That was my experience of Christianity initially, and some of you might relate to that. But as I've continued on in faith, this has changed for me. My conviction now is that in receiving Jesus, I receive Jesus. And what that means is I receive Jesus as Lord, and that means that I accept him as the model par excellence of how to live life as a human being. He is my authority, if you like. I receive him as my saviour, and I see his death and resurrection as breaking open every system of judgment that would exclude me or enslave me. So I belong with and to Jesus because I decide I want to belong with and to Jesus. And then I belong with every other person who makes a similar decision as well, like many of you people. But more than that, I belong with anyone and everyone as far as I'm concerned. Because while I can do nothing to ensure that other people accept me, any criteria I might use to exclude anyone else has been broken open by the grace of Christ. Does that make sense? So I can't ensure anybody else accepts me, but I no longer have any ammunition to keep other people away in terms of not accepting them because all those things have been broken open by the grace of Christ. We'll think a bit more about that briefly. In between the saying about the fire and the divisions in the family, Jesus says one more thing about a baptism he must undergo. And he's not talking about his baptism in the Jordan uh, with John the Baptist because that had already happened. It sounds very much like he was talking about his death and resurrection, which is what baptism kind of symbolises, you know, going down under and then coming up into new life, that kind of thing. This is a very, very significant event. Let's think for a moment. What happens when the pronouncement of the judgment of God, which is what the Sanhedrin and the uh, imperial authority of uh, Pontius Pilate were doing, they were pronouncing the judgment of God, what happens when that turns out to actually be the lynching of the Son of God? What happens to our certainties at that moment? The things that have traditionally held a culture and a society together, you know, the, the rule of law and the truth of God, when those claims turn out to be ultimately untrue or false, there is the introduction of an ultimate non-certainty into the equation. And I, I see an analogy, an analogy here with the tussle that's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. It's a really interesting situation, although obviously quite scary for lots of people. See, if the people of Hong Kong were to be successful at resisting the Chinese communist government, government there, it would expose the Chinese government as vulnerable to resistance. And China cannot afford to allow the people of Hong Kong to get their way because that would break the myth of a communist government hegemonic rule. At the moment, the idea is that resistance is futile in most of 
China. But if one place successfully resists, the myth is broken. Other territories might resist as well then. See, when belief and tradition that holds things together starts to get undermined, what holds things together then? Jesus' death exposes all of our claims of ultimate judgment to be nothing more substantive than unwitting, opportunistic and arbitrary self-interest. That's the nature of human beings. That's where we operate from. And certainties start to dissolve everywhere. What do you do when your certainties start to dissolve? When truth claims multiply and become contradictory as they do today, when you're not sure whether that's true or that's true, and in fact there's so much information, it's dizzying and confusing. What happens when community trust begins to wear thin and everyone has the potential to be a law unto themselves and each person is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes? That's when we need to discern these signs and realise that we are well into the time that Jesus was referring to in this talk. We call it the apocalypse because that means the unveiling. It means the revealing Revealing cult, the, the culture's pillars for what they are and the revealing of people's hearts to show what we're really made of. This apocalypse has begun and we are living in the midst of it. So how might we respond? In this world where nothing appears certain and we cannot trust anyone to be quite who they make out to be, although the more you know them, hopefully the more you can trust them, how can we know the nature of truth? How can we perceive a person's true nature? How can we discern where sound life might be found? And I would say we should weigh everything in the light of Christ. And what that means for me is, if your sense of righteousness makes you feel superior to anyone else, or if anyone else's sense of righteousness appears to make them feel superior to anyone else, know that that is dodgy ground. There is no righteousness that makes some people more righteous than others. There is only the grace of God. Only the person who sees themselves as righteous in their own right wants to stand before the judge. That last little story that we heard read by Mary. You're a fool. You're a fool if you think you are better than anyone else and you should take your case to the ultimate judge. You're not seeing clearly. The truly righteous know that they are saved by grace. We know that we stand on the same ground as everyone else and we are wise to work it out with each other. That which advances the cause of grace, mercy and forgiveness is more likely to be true than that which judges and excludes, which is more likely to be arbitrary and self-serving because it always comes at the expense of the most vulnerable. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but some people find that really confronting and Jesus wants us to stand firm in gospel truth. 
in our quickly shifting and uncertain world, work out where it is sound to stand and stand firm because deep and long-held traditions are being unravelled. The fire is going through the bushland. Absolute claims have been subverted and we need a fresh discernment of what is true. And let me assure you, the grace of God is true. Grace that renders none of us better or worse than anyone else. It is an unsettling truth. Some are so aggrieved by this unsettling truth that they reject it outright and hold on to the traditions that have always held them and that's where divisions can occur. People who follow Jesus don't create the divisions. They become the victims of them. Because for those of us who realise the truth of God's grace, we know there is only one place to stand and it's the place that every person will ultimately stand before God. Let us pray. Lord, some of your sayings are very confronting and we're not sure how to, what to make of them. But we thank you that your grace is true and even though some react against it and would react so strongly as to, to divide themselves away from it, it remains true. And no matter what energy is expended or what violence is perpetrated in the name of trying to keep that truth away, it will not be thwarted. Help us to walk in your truth, to be people of grace who know we are no better and no worse than any other, but that we are saved by your continuing love, that we might share that love with the world to the honour of your name. Amen.